1: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Best known for her award-winning real-life Victorian It, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, the author Kate Summerscale has just published a delightful new encyclopedia of phobias and manias. Last week I spoke with her about some of my favourite entries. Enjoy. Kate, your new book is The Little Book of Phobias and Manias. It's an A to Z of fears and obsessions that range from the relatable to the ridiculous. (laughs) And phobias and manias in the psychological sense that we think of them today are very much a product of the Enlightenment and Victorian era, beginning in the 18th century with the founding father, Benjamin Rush.
0: Right. The idea of phobia and mania had existed but they'd been used phobia to describe uh, physical conditions, symptoms of disease, and mania to mean social crazes. But in 1786, Benjamin Rush listed... Some psychological terrors and compulsions. And um, he it was a slightly tongue in cheek, but nonetheless he launched a kind of mania for naming these conditions, which continued throughout the 19th century in Europe and the United States. And by the late 19th century, doctors, physicians, and psychiatrists were busily identifying new specific phobias in particular um, and, and categorizing people's emotional states in that way.
1: Rush's tone is light-hearted, and yours is often too. But before we talk about some of the more eccentric or comedic phobias and manias, I'd like to start with those that receive serious treatment from the psychological community. In modern psychiatry, what defines a phobia, and how do these break down into different types?
0: Well, a phobia in the um, sort of diagnostic manuals in psychiatric terms, a diagnosable phobia, is an aversion or loathing that has that is irrational, extreme, has lasted six months or more and interferes with a person's daily life, so prevents them from doing things that they otherwise would want to do. But of course, many of us have things that we call phobias which don't meet that high bar. Um, but even at that bar, it's thought that one in 10 women have a specific phobia and one in 20 men. And so it's, uh, as, a, as a psychiatric sort of medical condition, it has to be severe. But um, in popular discourse, we talk about phobias. Um, there's a sort of spectrum of fears and uh, and the more severe we might call it a phobia, whether it meets that definition or not.
1: Can you explain to us the different categories of phobia that psychiatrists use?
0: What I deal with mostly in these book, this book are the specific phobias, which are phobias of particular objects or situations. But there are also social phobias, which I touch on. A few of the entries in, in my book fall under into that category. And um, those are even more common than the specific phobias. So those are things like glossophobia, the fear of public speaking, agoraphobia, fear of public spaces, um, and open spaces and, fears of uh, or social phobia in general, or the, the sort of anxiety about being around other people.
1: Phobias are not evenly distributed through the population, and the causes of phobias remain contested territory. Can you walk us through our best current theories of what causes a phobia?
0: Well, they, many phobias seem to be rooted in our evolutionary history, so in our prehistory, in that they stem from their exaggerated versions of fears that might well have might have served us well as a species in the past. So the fear of water, of heights, of confined spaces, of snakes, all of these things might have once served to protect us, and so they have become ingrained in our primitive brains. They're latent. But there's still a mystery about why they exist in some people and not others, why they should survive at all in such extreme forms, and there are many psychological theories about what triggers these phobias, even if we accept that they are latent um, for, in, our, in our sort of physiology. Um, and those can st- range from anything to sort of modelling, seeing other people who are scared or watching scary films or seeing images that implant an extreme fear in us, to traumatic experiences, shocks typically in childhood, which may or may not be directly related to the object that becomes the focus of a phobia or fixation.
1: Spiders are one of the most common objects of phobia. And there is an evolutionary theory of why we ought to be afraid of spiders. But you suspect that there's more going on here than meets the eye?
0: Yeah, it seems as if more maybe it's natural to be scared of spiders. It feels to those who have a arachnophobia like a reflex and an instinct, and yet it is kind of mysterious because the places where arachnophobia is most prevalent is um other countries like European countries where poisonous spiders are very rare, and so there's been a lot of research and speculation about why we're so scared of spiders when they actually pose relatively little risk to us, and an extra a mystifying element is that a spider triggers both the fear reflex, but also the disgust reflex, which is in a slightly different part of the brain. So it's sort of unclear what what it is that even in evolutionary terms is really at the root of this. And one psychologist in in Britain has come up with a theory that um, throughout the... Middle Ages, during the Black Death, the plague, spiders were thought to be the carriers of disease. And although in the 19th century, this was discovered to be a false belief, in fact, it was the fleas on rats that transmitted disease. The idea of spiders as these sort of dirty, disease-transmitting creatures had become so embedded in sort of Western consciousness that it's been passed down, um, from parent to child, um, through literature, imagery, and so on. And so the, the spider has sort of been demonized by our history and our culture in ways that, um, that, that still endure and that make it an extremely common object of phobia.
1: Thankfully, it is possible to cure arachnophobia.
0: Yes. Many of these simple, specific phobias, however deeply rooted they are, are astonishingly straightforward to cure. There are lots of methods, cognitive, behavioral therapy, exposure therapy, virtual reality therapy, that are very helpful. And in fact, phobias are more treatable than most anxiety disorders. And yet people typically don't seek treatment for phobias most people live with their phobias and of course they can simply you know as often as not avoid the things that they they're afraid of instead of um, dealing with eradicating the fear
1: mysophobia which is the fear of contamination is responsive to exposure therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy but the pandemic made life very difficult for germaphobes
0: Yes. Um, it's sort of a, it's an interesting history, this misophobia, in that it um, really took hold or began to be noticed in the late 19th century when the germ theory of disease transmission became widely accepted and known. And sort of young women in America, there are many several case studies of Young women who became obsessive about washing their hands, washing their clothes, not touching money, not touching the pages of newspapers. And it's manifest now in various forms of obsessive compulsive disorder and. The pandemic and the, what we were sort of instructed to do by the government was to suddenly all behave like mysophobes and not um, not touch one another, not go too close to other human beings, to wash our hands at every opportunity. And uh, it's uh, I did read one uh, article by somebody who suffered from these sorts of health anxieties, who said it was actually rather sort of liberating and kind of a relief to go to the supermarket and see people behaving in the way that she'd always been taught to believe was pathological and made her weird, and instead it had become mainstream, it had become normalised. And so unexpected things like that can happen. You'd think it would exacerbate the disorder and the phobia. And of course, um, I'm sure it often did. But it also can sort of flip by flipping the sort of idea of what is rational and irrational behavior. It can also make people who see themselves as outliers suddenly feel included and recognized (laughs) and validated. And so it, that was a, a yeah, surprising thing to realise, that it, it didn't only make things worse for people who were scared of dirt and germs, but, um, but also made them feel normal.
1: One fear that is very much a product of culture rather than evolution is culverophobia, or fear of clowns. How did clowns go from delighting us to frightening us? How do we go from Ronald McDonald to the Joker? <laughs>
0: Yes, that was um, a very nicely clear trajectory in that um, it does seem that in the 60s and 70s, clowns in the United States and much of the Western world were sort of lovable and fun. And then in 1979, there was a serial killer in America called John Wayne Gacy, who was convicted of killing 33 young men and boys. And he was pictured in the newspapers in a clown costume because he had worked as a part-time entertainer in the 1970s. And suddenly, this image of the clown facade hiding the the evil serial killer took hold. And there were sort of, there was kind of outbreaks of mass panic in the States in particular, but but also Came to this country, and people were reporting stalker clowns, and the idea of the clown as a predator became widespread, um, and the, just as a demonic figure as opposed to a, a lovable um, comic figure. And then, in partly as a result of this, I suppose Stephen King um, published a book called It in 1986, which really cemented this this image because his protagonist, um, his, his sort of baddie, was a, a supernatural clown who preyed on children.
1: Sometimes a phobia isn't a fear so much as a prejudice, I'm thinking of Sinophobia or Islamophobia or Xenophobia. And you've suggested that labelling these sorts of nationalist and racist feelings as phobias might be a pretty unhelpful way of reducing their spread.
0: Yeah, it's a, a tricky thing. Homophobia, for example, was um, coined as a as a word by somebody in the late 60s, early 70s who wanted to to find a word for anti-gay prejudice. And um, yet, many people in the gay community and and outside were thought it was dangerous to label prejudice um, and and sort of cruelty as. A disease as a kind of disorder because it almost absolved the individuals of responsibility for for their sort of hatred by make pathologizing it in that way. But the inventor of the term stood by it, saying it was very useful and um, it had helped serve the cause of you know, gay rights. Uh, and similarly. All these other terms like xenophobia, fatphobia, transphobia, they're often political tools and, um, they can, they can cut both ways. They can be useful in fighting prejudice, but they can also kind of make it, you know, label, label the enemy and make it sort of stick, um, and give, give less room for maneuver. One useful thing about homophobia, and I think some of these other terms, is that um, in terms of uh, what the argument that they imply, is that by using the word phobia, they are attributing the prejudice to fear. And so that is a very specific maneuver where you're saying, you hate us because you're scared of us, or you hate us because you're scared that you might be like us. And so it's they're very loaded terms and they're very sort of interesting to think about um, psychologically and politically. But they're definitely not medical phobias in the way um, they, they wouldn't be diagnosable. They're, they're words that are useful in or, or not in, in a sort of political argument.
1: Let's shift our attention to the other half of the book. What is a mania and how does the concept of mania fit into modern medicine?
0: Well, a mania. So if a phobia is a compulsion to avoid something, a mania is a compulsion to do something. So they're two sides of the same coin in a way. They're all fixed, they're based in fixation and obsessive thoughts. Um, we don't really talk about mania in medical terms anymore, except when talking about psychotic manias or so you know, schizophrenia or uh, bipolar manias. But there are many behaviours that are, that the old mania description applies to, often like personality disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, and so on. Manic behaviours either in somebody's um, individual life, like compulsive hair plucking or picking at skin or drinking. And then there are the other manias, which I deal with in the book, which are the collective manias, which are these sort of emotionally contagious events like beetle mania, where groups of people um, gather together and behave in, in manic ways uh, as a sort of, you know, a, a group, a sort of emotional and sometimes social, cultural uprising.
1: Gender politics plays an important role in the history of these so-called manias, most obviously kleptomania and nymphomania.
0: Yeah, in the 19th century, well, nymphomania was first used in the the 18th century or first was popularized. And of course, it's, it's very gender specific, because what it means is excessive sexual desire in a woman. And Clearly, the idea of what is excessive sexual desire in a woman has shifted dramatically over time, so that the word has more or less fallen out of use. Um, but it was sort of regularly diagnosed in the 19th century, and sometimes—and this is the you know the dark side of some of these diagnoses—once it had been diagnosed, it justified extreme interventions, occasionally surgical interventions like removing a woman's clitoris or ovaries in order to rid her of this supposed sexual frenzy. But looking back, it often seems as if really what was going on was just a a woman who was more interested in having sex than her husband would be, would be diagnosed with nymphomania. And yeah, the word became, it, it was in the 1960s, people started to seriously question whether a nymphomaniac woman was behaving any differently from most men did.
1: And tell us a bit about kleptomania as well. That's another one with an interesting gendered history.
0: Yeah, that was um, that word was coined in the at the beginning of the nineteenth century in France, and it, it means a compulsion to steal. And um, it was most often invoked in the courts in defense of well-heeled women who were caught stealing from department stores. In the late part of the 19th century, lots of department stores opened in Paris, London, New York. And instead of the transactions taking place over a counter, women were free to Pick up and handle the goods as they as they walked around, and there was a rise in the in in theft among people who they were often stealing perfume or lace or jewels, and by labeling it as kleptomania, these women could sometimes escape a prison sentence because they were um, understood as suffering from a disease rather than being criminals. And yet again, as with nymphomania, sometimes there were some very severe treatments for this supposed disease, including um, removal of reproductive organs. So uh, it was highly gendered. And the thing about kleptomania is, if you needed the thing that you were stealing, like a bag of flour or something, it wasn't kleptomania because it was rational. Um, it was only if you do, if you were well off. Uh, that that you were likely to receive this diagnosis. So it was not only gendered, but it was also very determined by class and and wealth.
1: You already alluded to Beatlemania and um, the concept of a collective mania. There have been many of these through history. What happens when manias take hold in an entire community?
0: Well, it does um, seem that Beatlemania, at the same time of Beatlemania in the early 60s, there was an outbreak of something that was labelled laughing mania in East Africa, which was a group of girls at uh, missionary schools in, in East Africa would start laughing, crying, um, and it seemed contagious. They'd set each other off and it would be completely uncontrollable. And the um, the people who ran these schools had no idea what to do. But sort of digging into it, it looks as if there were all kinds of um, cultural and social clashes and turmoil going on in that, for a start, these girls had been removed from their families and they were being taught Christian Teachings and, and values in these schools, and at the same time, their sort of ancestral homelands were, their families were being moved from the traditional sites and into cities. So it fe- seems as if these outbreaks were, in a way, a an expression of confusion, anguish, anxiety, excitement among a younger generation who felt the world sh- shifting. Beneath them and who had no control over it. And very often, these, whether it's beetle mania in the West or laughing mania in Africa, they very often do take place, these collective frenzies among young women and girls. And they do often take place at times of great social change or upheaval. And so it feels as if something is kind of spilling out, something is being expressed by people who don't necessarily have the means to effect change or to express themselves in other ways, relatively powerless members of society.
1: Some of the phobias and manias in this book are pretty silly and even imaginary. Which is your favourite of the more comical ones?
0: Um, Well, I like... uh... The best ones to me are the ones that seem comical on the surface and then, um, become strangely compelling, like, um, tripophobia, the fear of clusters of holes, which was named relatively recently. Only about 20 years ago was that identified by groups on the internet who realized they shared this anxiety and kumponophobia, which is the a phobia of buttons which I've learned anecdotally just by talking to people is surprisingly common. And uh, Steve Jobs supposedly suffered from this, which is why he wore his neck sweaters and perhaps why his products are so streamlined. And so the fear of buttons seems on the face of it ludicrous and comical and odd. But once I read the case studies, I started to kind of Get a feel for it. And the, the fact that people who are anxious about buttons are typically anxious, especially about dangling buttons or detached buttons. And that sense of buttons as something that's part of you, that's maybe holding you together, but that could also come loose, fall off, expose you, you know, like losing a bit of yourself, uh, like losing a tooth or something. And the fear of buttons also seems to trigger the disgust reflex. So this sense of buttons as kind of liminal objects that both bu- are and aren't part of you, that are things that are meant to be securing and yet might, can also come undone. I I I was quite I was sort of persuaded of this as, as not so comical, but um, quite sort of intrinsic to what we're like as humans.
1: What are you afraid of?
0: I am afraid. I don't like flying. My phobia is mild rather than severe in that I do take planes, but I also do avoid them if I can. But um that is a, a very illogical, irrational fear. You, you know, planes are relatively safe. Um So I was interested in the sort of theories about why, you know, as one psychologist pointed out, we're not scared of things because of the probability that they'll happen. We're scared of things because of how awful it would be if they did in many cases. So I've got that. I used to, I realized as I was researching this book that the blushing can be a phobia. And I had that condition as a teenager, as I think many teenagers do of a certain disposition. And that's a fascinating phobia once you think about it, because the thing you fear is caused by your fear. The anxiety creates the object of anxiety. So once you forget to be worried about blushing, you no longer blush. So it's very sort of circular and self-fulfilling. And some psychologists theorize that, uh, the person who blushes is, is typically blushes because they're terrified of attention being focused on them. And yet the blush draws attention. And so uh, you know, is it an expression of a kind of suppressed wish to be noticed? Um, so all that's just quite quite interesting stuff about these involuntary responses, what they might express about us. That luckily that past with my teenage years. So uh, it's not, not a current phobia, but uh, it helped sort of remind me of how obsessive and disabling some of these these fears can be.
1: Did you become frightened of anything in the course of researching it?
0: Well, I certainly got sort of woken up to some of how these... Um, it would be glib to say I became, that I acquired the phobias themselves because not in any diagnosable way. But I did, especially some of the sort of textural phobias, you know, think, thinking hard about how, about insects, frogs, about how popcorn might be quite scary and a bit uncanny um, and cotton wool. The sort of squeak of cotton wool, the way it doesn't, the way it feels and looks and sounds don't kind of fit together. I sort of I understand now the um, the sort of anxiety-inducing textures that really freak some people out. Um, so I, th- those were the ones that uh, that that I could sort of i almost imagined my way right into.
1: Well, we've barely scratched the surface of all the phobias and manias in the book, but it has been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much.
1: This episode starred Kate Summerscale and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. And our editor is John Doughty. Next week, Hannah will be talking to Gina Davis on her life in Hollywood, and I'll be in conversation with Booker Prize winner George Saunders. Until then, thanks for listening.